when we think about whether we should put some land in our portfolio, we've got to think as if we were living there ourselves. Uh, what the streetscapes are like, what the contours of the land is like, what the um, area is like for families, what the median income of an area is, demographic makeup of an area. We need to think about what the living experience is going to be like because after all, we're going to buy community first. Welcome to the Urban Property Investor. I'm your host, Sam Saggers, here to help you crack the code of real estate wealth. Today, we're going to dig into land. Yes, they're not making any more of it. So let's have a land-based discussion. Not all land is created equal, but today I thought we would dig into the science of how urbanization occurs and, of course, how land can increase your wealth when you get a hold of some. Of course, uh, land value is a big conversation inside of real estate, how it's valued, how it's perceived, what's important to people. So let's tackle it. It's going to be a big one today. Hey, welcome back. Of course, urban property investors, I hope your week is going good. I hope you've enjoyed the podcast this year. And of course, many more podcasts to come. And thank you to those who have decided to join in for the first time. We have a rule here at the Urban Property Investor, play the program in double speed. My life is good. Things are going well. Uh, Rafi, the Gopnik dog, the unemployed dog is now on a regime. Yes, we are actually trying to teach him not to like ball. He loves playing with balls and uh, last night we removed the ball from him and it was like living with an ice addict. He couldn't sleep. He was up and around trying to find out where this ball is. But uh, we're creating a new pattern in Rafi. He's no longer going to be an unemployed dog. Yes, we're training him to do agility. He's going to be an agility jog. Uh, we went to the Easter show, my wife and I, uh, earlier this year, and we saw agility, and we're like, Rafi can do that. So that's what I've been up to. I've been uh, retraining a ice addict to not just want to chew a ball. And so uh, it's been a big job, but we can all create new patterns. If dogs can do it, we can do it as human beings. And today, uh, really, the show is designed to give you an idea around land and the types of land that are typically available out in the marketplace and, of course, um, how you can then go off and, and potentially construct or renovate a property on that particular land. So really today we're going to cover off, uh, you know, the idea of infield, next field, greenfield land. We're going to talk about some concepts in choosing good land. We're going to talk about pillars of making profit from perhaps building a property. Um, and of course, we're, we're going to, to delve into the different ways cities work. Now, cities have uh, ultimately different places where people can live. And of course, there are different marketplaces in every city. If we think about the great big cities here in Australia, we've got five cities with well over a million people in them. And of course, there are suburbs which are walkable to the city. There are suburbs that are on the city's doorstep, inner ring neighbourhoods. There are middle ring neighbourhoods where larger suburban family homes dominate the landscape. And of course, there are new suburbs and new communities popping up on the edge of our cities as part of urban growth areas. And of course, sometimes known as urban sprawl, you get in your car, you drive as far as you can until you qualify to borrow some money and can afford the type of housing in that area. So what's good? What's not so good? Really, today we want to uh, tackle the conversation around land. And of course, some of those conversations are big conversations because 
Really, when it comes to the idea of buying any real estate, we do have to think about community first. Community matters in real estate. It is so important because you're not buying just a property. You're also buying the neighborhood. You're buying your neighbors. You're buying those incomes your neighbors earn. Um, You're buying really a local experience. And uh, again, this means when we think about whether we should put some land in our portfolio, we've got to think as if we were living there ourselves. Uh, what the streetscapes are like, what the contours of the land is like, what the um, area is like for families, what the median income of an area is, demographic makeup of an area. We need to think about what the living experience is going to be like because after all, we're going to buy community first. So let's have a chat about the idea of the different types of land. The first type, if you like, of land is generally found in population growth corridors. What happens here in Australia, we have a bit of a business plan, bring in lots of new people to the country, um, and of course, sprawl our cities further and further afield. Now, when it comes to the future of dwellings being put into our bigger cities, Places like Melbourne and Brisbane and Sydney and Perth and Adelaide, they're going to double their population base. And of course, this means we will need millions of more properties. Now, generally speaking, 40% of those new properties which will be created for new people effectively will go in areas which have never really existed before as residential communities. And we call those communities greenfield. 60% will go to basically old established communities, which are being reborn. And we'll talk about that. So when it comes to new dwellings over the next 10, 20, 30 years, it's going to be lots of brand new dwellings created. 40% go to urban growth areas in population areas, growth zones, greenfield communities cow paddocks being turned into housing estates. And of course, uh, not all cow paddocks being turned into housing estates are good. There are certainly some better ones out in society. And really, when it comes to buying property in greenfield locations, really is about communities. And I often say this, sometimes I guess, you know, we often think about people buying in a new housing community as, um, you know, uh, places whereby, you know, properties are, you know, homogenous, they, they look fairly similar. We often think about it as, um, you know, perhaps not as cool as buying in an older established suburb. But I can tell you there's plenty of old established suburbs which are run down, beaten up and suffering what is known as the neighbourhood effect, fundamentally broken neighbourhoods. And the leapfrog effect of going a little bit further to go into a new land community which is full of community, not just land, actually can make you a lot more money than buying in a rundown derelict area where most people go to score ice that's just not going to work out so remember like the idea of new and old is always a conversation in real estate and there's benefits to both old established suburbs with character housing are just brilliant for capital growth Um, but for a lot of property investors they can't afford old established character uh suburbs. So what the alternative or the trade-off is, is run-down suburbs. And there's a big, big difference between a run-down suburb, which is suffering the neighborhood effect, and a brand new community suffering also the neighborhood effect of good community. People are dropping millions of dollars to buy housing in good communities in new established precincts. So uh, the proof is in the pudding of what people are prepared to pay. 
So the first rule, if you are going to a greenfield community, in my view, is community is key. Community is key. Um, great master plan communities being put together is is really key. Great uh, precinct plans, which are run by reputable brands. So when you think about the Stocklands and the Lend Leases and so forth, they do some like exceptional communities which have performed and the evidence is there that growth has unfolded as those communities have, in, have uh, matured. So let's go through some concepts. First concept, of course, is community. Without community, forget about it. Like if you're just buying um, a random new house in a random place with a, you know, nothing community, that's you're going to get a nothing result. Uh, if the community in the new land precinct is a mover and shaker, you're probably going to get a better result doing that. But don't be fooled. Like there is this conversation between new and old. And um, really when you go into those broken neighborhood areas, man, there's some serious issues in those neighborhoods. You know, I just drove through a suburb in Melbourne. It's called Laverton. Laverton. Um, You know, I'm sure there's some nice streets, but Honestly, we played spot the Gopnik in Laverton. Um, you know, basically Eshes in red Adidas tracksuits cruising around, basically uh, sitting on their porch, you know, doping up is basically part of the neighbourhood character. You go a little bit further past Laverton into some of the new land corridors, 10 minutes further, brand new housing communities, um, you know, good families, solid incomes, completely different vibe. 10 minutes further, one's old, one's new. I'll let you be the judge of what would be a better purchase buying in an old Gopnik rundown Eshe suburb, which probably will never gentrify, will just continue to fall apart, will just be full of broken windows, or you go to a new community and, uh, you know, light it up and uh, really it's a great example and I've seen these examples over and over and over when it comes to these type of places. Quite often the land corridor areas um, are just a little bit further than really bad secondhand marketplaces. So people leapfrog, they jump across and go, you know what, I'd prefer to go a little bit further out where everyone has the same vested interest as me of growing their wealth and looking after community. So obviously, if you're going to buy in a greenfield community, you've got to consider land size. Uh, People move to outer suburbs for space, not place. If they want place, they would potentially, and they're on a budget, look at the apartment market. If they want space, though, they will typically um, go further out to find, um, you know, a larger home with land content. That's the concept. That's what they're uh, looking for when they go out to those communities. Um, Again, good greenfield land is also based around good amenities and transport. It, It, you don't, necessarily want to put yourself in a position where you're looking at land which is too far out it's not commutable um, there's no access to freeways there's no access to transport of course um, people still need to move and movement is a massive massive part this is where the idea of the 20 minute neighborhood comes into its own Today, around our cities, jobs are not just centred in CBDs. There are job centres all over our cities. And of course, uh, some of the greenfield communities have very good access to basically other uh, major job centres. And so quite often we create a reference that everyone who lives in, um, you know, 40 minutes from the city is using the city. It's the polar opposite. 
Um, they would use the city every now and then for some entertainment, but they're not uh, essentially, um, you know, driven driving into the city daily. It's just not how it works. So we want some good amenities, good uh, local concepts as well, things like schools and shops and things to do connected to the Greenfield land community. It's a, it's a great way to look at those places. And uh, I also think when it comes to buying out in an outer Greenfield neighbourhood, you want to think about where the middle ring actually is. And I've had some great success doing this over the years whereby um, I would go, well, where does the old established suburbs end and where does the newer suburbs begin? Effectively looking at real estate by virtue of there there are three rings to real estate, the inner, the middle and the outer. If you buy close to the middle but you're technically in the outer, what happens a decade later when another million people live in the city you've bought in? You're no longer considered outer, an outer suburb. You're considered a middle suburb, a newer middle suburb. And of course, uh, for Greenfield communities, there are there is the concept that, again, if you're um, going to be swallowed up as part of middle suburbia, the capital growth rates of middle suburbia led by um, half-decent families has been very, very good. There's a lot of evidence that that growth has been good over the years. We also want, um, as I alluded to, master plans that stand out. You know, we want to be connected to not just housing. We want to be connected to transport. We want to be connected to jobs. Um, some great master plans, um, you know, or land near master plans, is just fantastic, like schools, TAFEs, uh, Westfields, you know, just everything you need to live a very, very comfortable existence can be provided by choosing the right land close to things that make a difference to community and, of course, therefore make a difference to the capital growth rates of the, uh, of, of the asset you maybe be looking at. Uh, land as well, which is going to get growth from population, uh, a population growth hotspot. Now, again, like really this is the demand side of the equation. The supply side is obviously how much land can be released. The demand side is if it's very popular and will uh, populate quickly, it's going to mean that the land diminishes at a much faster rate. And of course, this ultimately means that when the community sort of is established and the population now exceeds the level of properties on offer, you're going to get another cycle of growth. When you buy into a greenfield land uh corridor or into a greenfield community obviously you're buying into more land being produced and so again if we know that it's a popular place and population wants it really the absorption of that land will just travel faster and of course as the land is released in general prices tend to rise because the land developers very smart, they tend to, um, you know, put up the price as time goes on, which is good. And so, again, when we think about this kind of model, I don't know when the last time I heard of land being oversupplied. In theory, greenfield land could be oversupplied because master plan developers and people or organizations like Stocklands and Lendlease have 25-year plans and 50,000 lots in some of these places. But they never oversupply their own land subdivision 
because they ultimately would create a problem with community and profit if they did that. So for the most part, you get this very stable effect of the land prices holding their own. And of course, as time goes on, prices tend to rise as land runs out. Land goes up when land runs out. Now, in a greenfield context, that's usually as stages unfold. In an infill uh, or middle ring concept, land is usually run out already. So we often see some levels of capital growth in those areas that can can even be uh, even more spectacular. So the next concept I think is really important with greenfield land is um, you're still buying a community, right? And so what do communities want? They want open space, walking tracks, playgrounds, parks. They want not only an experience inside the home, they want an experience as part of the local community. Think about when you grew up, you probably maybe grew up again, you know, using a park as a child or going for bushwalks or riding your bike around, you know, quiet streets. Same concept. It's just in a new community, which is, I think, really, really important. Also, communities where you can walk places, um, I think, are just amazing. Now, I used to do a lot of work in a community called Springfield in Brisbane. It actually got voted the world's, I think it was the world's best master plan community. Like it won some amazing award. Um, And you go there and you're like, holy cow, like this is a pretty special place. It's got, uh, you know, town swimming pools. It's got tennis courts, golf courts. It's got hospitals, universities, TAFEs. It's got schools. It's got Westfields. It's got everything. Like you, like it's got train line. It's got um, private schools. It's got um, you know greater. Uh, I think it's yeah. The Brisbane Lions now have a training facility there. It's just got it all. And when you go there and you go, wow, you know, you can buy a home in this precinct, and you don't even need to get in the car to walk to the university, the hospital, the TAFE, the Westfields, the shops, the tennis courts, the the town swimming pool, you start to go, wow, this is a really brand new, incredible version of a new suburb. Prices have bolted in that suburb. Um, you know, I was helping people buy their sort of sub 500. Now it's like a million bucks like to get into that suburb. Um, but it's such a standout, standout community. I always think it's a great example of what um, is possible when smart people deliver beautiful places. It's just an incredible, incredible um, concept. You know, sometimes I run tours whereby I take people and I explain this type of stuff on town planning. You know, we all get on a bus and drive around and I just love going to that community because it's just like such a good example of what is possible in real estate. So obviously 20-minute neighbourhood matters. You know, we need good land close to jobs, um, you know, and and town centres, industrial estates. Again, obviously, if you're living in a new community, that's the concept we're looking for. We want just high level of owner-occupier appeal. And again, like sometimes when you look at newer suburbs, um, you've got different ages within that particular suburb. You've got uh, what we refer to as new debt markets and old debt markets. Now, some of the advantages of much older established suburbs is people who have lived there for 34 years carry absolutely no debt. And because they carry no debt, there's like less volatility ultimately when, um, you know, interest rates change and things like that because typically a third, third 
uh, 30% of a, of uh, old established suburb may have no mortgage, 30% a mortgage and perhaps 30% of tenants. In, uh, you know, greenfield communities, what you're really looking for is a high, high owner-occupier to tenant ratio. You really don't want uh, a suburb where there's just full of tenants that has never existed before. That's not such a good idea. When there's really no new infrastructure, it's a brand new suburb and 80% of people are tenants, that suburb is going to go backwards. What we want is the owner-occupiers to lift the value and we want to be the sneaky investor that somehow gets into the estate. That's the model that works very, very well. So owner-occupier, we want you know, 70, 80, 90% owner-occupier uh, present in that suburb or that brand new housing community. Now, again, um, you know, obviously the those areas are not 30 years old and so people haven't necessarily got themselves mortgage-free, but great suburbs will attract great people with, who use the instrument of uh, lowering their LVR because perhaps they're trading up to get into that community. That's how it works. And uh, in real estate, you've got this concept where 12 years is the average hold time for property as an investment. Uh, 12 years is the average hold time for uh, for owner-occupiers, right? So when I say property as an investment, owner-occupiers hold property for 12 years. Where do they go on the 13th year? They're usually upgrading their, uh, their, their situation. They're looking for a better place. They're looking to improve their lifestyle. They've made money out of real estate. Now they're going to do it again. They move uh, usually closer to a better piece of lifestyle. That could be the city, that could be the beach, that could be uh, tree change, tree change, urban change, or sea change. It's generally how it works. And so if you think about a city, what happens is some greenfield areas are actually the next place where people go or they go so well, people use their equity and move even closer to the city itself. So there is good money going into many of those communities and there are certainly areas where you just would put a ruler through them and go too many tenants, not enough community, not enough um, precinct plan to drive owner-occupier appeal. Short-lived, um, just a house for a house sake. And of course, a house for a house sake as an investor is not necessarily going to tick a lot of boxes. So ultimately, um, that's the concept of really the idea of Greenfield. The next concept is what is known as Nextfield. What is the next land to fill up? And obviously, Nextfield is all about the idea of monopoly. When an area is monopolized, generally prices go up because there is no ability for land to uh, be opened up. And of course, the monopoly effect of real estate is a great effect. And next feel is the concept of buying before an area is monopolized, built out. Monopolized just means built out. And so obviously built out areas in housing generally are quite expensive. And for a lot of investors, they can't afford built out housing marketplaces. So if you want to factor in that you might like a built-out housing market, but you want to look at where an area is next to fill up, next to monopolize, then you look for a concept known as next fill. Next fill is really the, a great way to make money out of real estate. It's the next suburb that is potentially the better buy 
than the established suburb, the next suburb effect. Now, again, like I've used this to my advantage over the years, the next suburb effect or the next fill effect many, many times. Like really one way to look at it is to look on some maps of places, maps of cities and go, okay, there's a little bit of area here. It's surrounded by, um, you know, older established housing. It's close to the city, 25 minutes, maybe 25, 30 kilometers from the city. And you can see on a map that it's basically landlocked, surrounded, can't go anywhere, can't grow out further and further. It can't go for another 200 kilometers. And ultimately, you use what is known as the straight line method. You draw a ruler between there and the city. You start to go, hang on a minute, houses in the suburbs closer in or very, very good prices. I can buy new in this next fill, next patch of, of grass to disappear and I can still do that um, at, and build myself a, a great, incredible property. Next fill, the next land to fill up. Now, generally, next fill is kind of like this middle ring, outer middle ring, um, urban rebirth story. It's it's really good land, but it's used for something else right now. Typically, what you find is urban farmland, believe it or not, um, in our cities, which have held out for whatever reason from um, early stage renewal and now the land is worth quite a lot and really the land's highest and best use is not selling cabbages and strawberries. It's selling basically or or it's now worth more as a residential parcel of land and so you get this rezoning effect and rebirth effect on Nextfill land. And I just love it. I love Nextfill because um, you you just can do really, really well out of it because you, like location obviously equals results in real estate. And if you can get yourself new properties in a middle ring suburb, that, that ticks a lot of boxes for me because um, the marketplace absolutely, from an owner-occupant view, love it. Love it. Close to everything, efficient infrastructure. You don't need for a Westfields to be built. You don't need new schools to be created. It's all there. You're just um, in a little corner of the world where there's going to be opportunity. And for property investors, it's a really, really cool way to play the game of property investment. Next field. Same thing happens. It fills up, land runs out, prices kind of go up. And, um, you know, I'd encourage you to do some mapping, you know, have a look at um, some of the areas which are protected on maps, which are things like, you know, forests, but then you can often find also land, which is just not used to its highest and best use. And of course, um, professional obviously investors tend to focus on this stuff as well and and say, well, all right, um, you know, and this is where you get sort of mid-sized companies going and buying a thousand lots of land, you know, 17 Ks from the city. And again, using the same dynamics as you would get in the greenfield areas, but you're just doing it a little bit closer to the city, surrounded by existing areas infrastructure surrounded by established housing and we call that next feel it's a little bit larger but uh, really when you go to those places it's really nothing stopping you know an eight hundred thousand dollar home becoming a 1.2 1.3 million dollar homes nothing stopping it um, and again I've used this myself a lot over the years where you sort of go well, the old established market, don't really see myself renovating. Where is the next area to fill up so I can just basically go new um, and not 
have to, you know, be part of a renovation, rehab kind of situation. And, you know, there's no right or wrong. The rehab could be great. The new could be great in Nextfield. It's, it's, you really need to then go into local mode. Does it locally tick the boxes? Do owner-occupiers see themselves there? The street's nice. So the local amenities good. And again, like, um, great way to make money. Certainly been doing that um, for, a, you know, ever in a day in my world. I think it's one of the best ways to, to make some money out of real estate. The third type of land, uh, if you like, to, to, to find, to build on, uh, is really rare earth. And, and, you know, we call this infield. So remember, there's greenfield next to fill up, which is a much larger piece of land. And then we've got infill. Infill tends to be really, really quite small um, parcels of land, which for whatever reason have once uh, in a blue moon pop up. You know, I've worked on infill land subdivisions whereby, by way of example, you know, a, a former school's closed down and there's, um, you know, like a kindergarten school and you can get 14 blocks of land on it or you've got, you know, 29 blocks of land which have been allocated by council as part of the suburbs, you know, microgrowth. So uh, infill is very, very small. You know, you're talking tennis court being turned into a land, subdiv- uh, two blocks of land. You're talking um, really, 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 really small. And where infill tends to happen is uh, basically in really smaller suburbs, desirable suburbs. Suburbs which are pretty expensive to begin with. Um, They may just by um, hook or by crook just get some new dirt thrown into them. There's no real rhyme or reason why it happens, um, but it's an exciting value proposition and I love it. I love it. Um, Infill is just, just, you know, basically a small boutique subdivision that is a one-off and um you know over the years i've i've tended to hunt down these because i just think they make such good investments for people and uh by way of example you know i'm sort of working on one now in brisbane in a suburb called mcdowell uh it's 12 lots 12 lots now mcdowell's like 12 k's to the city uh 12 lots of land, 12 Ks from the city. Don't have to be a, a, a genius to work out, well, that's probably going to be valuable and it's not going to only be valuable today. Fast forward 2032, Brisbane Olympics, how valuable is that land going to be in 2032? Probably more valuable than what it is today. Small boutique land. And again, like... Um, you know, there is a lot of evidence around this stuff to show that it it does really, really, really well. So land obviously can have some other definitions around it and there are some more sort of niche land conversations to have. I mean, not all land is created equal. Let's just get that you know, straight to begin with. Now, if you have some land sitting on Sydney Harbour, that's not equal to land um, out in a greenfield location. Simply not. You could have a 1,000 metres of land in a suburb on the edge of the city and it would never equate to 100 square metres of land on Sydney Harbour. Just it doesn't. Not all land is created created equal. And of course, land is it's not a set of apples or oranges. It's like it's it's you know, it's not all the same. And so you've just got to appreciate what that looks like. And I always use the metric that I rank uh, basically land. I give it an A when I'm looking at it, a B, a C, or a D for how I characterize the land. A grade, uh, B, C, and D. And I do this with really everything I do. I just simplify it. Is the real estate A grade land, 
Is it A-grade location? Um, and is it an A-grade build that, you know, is going to serve me into my older years as an investor? That's pretty much my model. And um, I just simplify my world just using that formula. I, you know, I'm trying to get the best possible piece of real estate for a budget. And for some people, their budget only gets them B, but, you know, a B for them is not is kind of an A, if that kind of makes sense, because they just don't have um, the financial depth to do, to do more. So does size matter when it comes to land? Well, land value is definitely different to... Uh, is definitely different to land size. And, you know, if you look at where the highest land values are, they're generally smaller blocks. Uh, they can be as low as 100 square metres and they're in better locations. So I think, you know, in Sydney, Paddington, I believe at the moment, carries the highest land value um, in, in Sydney real estate what people pay per square meter for a piece of land. Uh, obviously, it's going to have a house on it in Paddington, which is an old character suburb. It's got a, just a higher level of land value. And so that in itself is just the formula at work. So generally, the closer you go to the city, you can probably compromise land size because ultimately people accept that smaller land footprints are acceptable closer to the city and will ultimately pay more for the location of the land, not the size of the land, which is um, really an interesting dynamic. So often we get this kind of correlation that big is better in real estate. And of course, um, that assumption is accurate if you put two properties next to each other that you've got one at you know 300 square meters of land one at 500 square meters of land similar house on the block of land obviously the 500 square meter block of land with the house on it is better that's just the way it works um but you know, quite often, particularly if you grew up in Australia, there's this sort of assumption that bigger blocks are better. Um, and, you know, really, I think particularly in my era, you know, I grew up and you walked out in the backyard, the hills hoist, you know, this crazy looking contraption that someone invented in 1930 to hang up your underpants was out in the backyard. You had a lemon tree. Um, you had a kind of really old, decrepit home on this giant block of land. And, um, you know, today that's not necessarily how people want to live in an itchy, old, uh, creepy, cold house with a hill's hoist in the backyard um, on a giant block of land. So that's hence why you get this effect that actually land value trumps land size. And it's just the way kind of it works. So... Uh, today, people are, are more than happy to pay millions of dollars for terrace houses, by way of example, which have very little land size. So it's a bit of a cultural mismatch as to sometimes what investors like. Like everyone likes a large block of land, but living on it and investing in it is kind of two different things. And this is where I tend to do, if I'm going to buy a large block of land, I want to be able to subdivide it. And that's where, you know, I tend to look for, you know, a block of land where I can subdivide, you know, 12, 20, 25 times as part of um, doing some investments with other investors. Like we get together and buy a block of land and subdivide it in a next fill or infill location. That's, that's how we um, invest outside our buy and hold strategy. But there is a bit of a cultural mismatch. Certainly, um, you know, today millennials are entering their family formation stage. They are looking for uh, smaller homes, larger homes. They are looking for uh, extra bedrooms, things like that. Um, the baby boomers certainly holding on to their 
much more older uh, established homes in, you know, generally inner and middle suburbs. And, um, you know, for many of them, what happens is that sort of baby boomer generation, if they don't sort of downsize in their early 60s, the likelihood of them downsizing kind of dissipates because they tend to hold out until, you know, their final years um, living in, you know, a large, large five-bedroom, six-bedroom family home, just the two of them. And, um, you know, those larger blocks, though they exist and have become very, 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 very uh, expensive, they're generally controlled by much, much older Australians. And once they sort of pass on that home, generally what I see is the house is knocked down straight away or the land is subdivided fairly well straight away into a much more smaller dynamic. So we're kind of seeing the death of the huge, huge block of land, the quarter acre block, even the 600 square meter block of land is is now disappeared. What's probably more normal out there, you know, you're typically getting terraces with land sizes below uh, 200 cottages whereby land size is lower than 300 um, you know then you're getting more of a mainstream uh, yard family yard which is sort of four to five hundred um, and then you're you've got you know obviously you know still much larger blocks out there which are 600 plus which price wise is you know probably don't suit you know, property investors, you know, based on most of the budgets I see people can afford. Um, I guess there is a trap that bigger equals better. Uh, conceptually, I guess it's natural to think that, that bigger is better. Um, you know, when you kind of visualize it in your brain, it, it kind of ticks like that. But um, it's more about, I guess, the rate of capital growth rather than the land size. And again, like this is where you know, the right property in the right location absolutely gets a faster rate of growth than just a large block of land. And you see that all the time because there's large blocks of lands everywhere that really only get win for capital growth by virtue of rezoning. And, um, you know, that's in itself a bit of an art form. And today, even governments like the Victorian government tax you on on if they rezone, they 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 slug you a fifty percent windfall tax on your um, on your uplift of value, which is crazy, right? So the government, the menace, uh, as Andy Fenton would say, is out there. Also, we've got to also think that there's a lot of blocks where you can't do anything with the land, um, so the land can't be subdivided under the local. Uh, plans. There's there's no ability to do any higher and better use with the land. So some property investors will pay for land that actually carries no use. And again, it's kind of like an overcapitalizing effect of buying too much land that you can't do anything with. It's useless land. It can never be subdivided. Um, you know, the only way to exploit value off the land is to overbuild a palatial house and of course that would be overcapitalizing to extract obviously the use of the land so for a lot of investments like there is this trap that bigger equals better but it doesn't necessarily always pan out that way um, if the extra land cannot be used for a better use often means like you're paying cash for the land like a larger block of land that ultimately um, sends your investment into negative cash flow territory. In other words, you're paying for land that can never extract a higher and better use by virtue of overpaying. And so the land trap is there. It can happen. And uh, it's a bit of a menace as well. So there is a market for uh, smaller blocks. And today, again, um, depending if it's a terrace, it could be 200. Um, you know, if it's a cottage, 300 square meters. If it's a regular sort of 400 or 500 square meter block, there is 
a market for all of it. And and quite often, um, you know, I see people dialogue about that. I mean, who lives in a terrace? Well, the answer is everyone. Everyone lives in a terrace. You've got families growing up in terraces. You've got um, old community people. You've got modern uh, minimalists living in terrace. You've got uh, location hunters. You've got um, executives who lives in a 300 square meter, like everyone. So sometimes property investors start to create music in their minds about stuff which is kind of just like people today will live in terraces, villas, cottages, apartments, houses. There's people are living in tents at the moment because there's nowhere to live. So um, certainly when it comes to that conversation, I think it's an important one that you don't get tripped up too much on land size. Um, though, you know, uh, if it's out there and it can be grabbed um, and it's affordable and it's not overcapitalizing, it, it, it's obviously valuable. Um, I guess, uh, you know, when we think about when land size is, is actually too small, we've talked about when it's too big. When it's too small is when you can't design a decent home on the land and you have to compromise the design of the house to accommodate the size of the land and this is where you get a a deformed house basically it's not how should i put it in keeping with the demographics of the neighborhood and the reason is perhaps the land size and the footprint of the land was just too small and the builder has had to, and the architect have had to create a little bit of a hog, you know, a podgy house which has no uh, functionality. And again, that's when probably you, um, you know, shouldn't look at a house that that is dysfunctional. No one really wants that. I think also when it comes to size. I would choose orientation over size. I mean, the value of land is also connected to orientation. You know, in colder climates, um, you know, a north-facing block can be, you know, a smaller 350-square-metre north-facing block would trump, in my viewpoint, a uh, 500-square-metre south-facing block. Um, you know, it, it just... It, people also consider orientation and again in the hotter climates it's less of a problem because no one wants the sun in colder climates it's it's a conversation you know you've got a north facing backyard um you know it's it's valuable again because you know obviously you get that um all day sun effect which is is probably nicer than having a shady cold yard that no one ever wants to go you know right up the back of the yard because it's just ridiculously freezing so you've got to consider these things you know sometimes orientation actually trumps everything street frontage is important obviously we're talking about um, new land uh, infill land greenfill land we could also talk about older land and and um, established neighborhoods where existing homes sit on it um this is where the conversation of street frontage is important or street appeal which is a a big conversation like some of the nicest properties in my viewpoint um have little to no traffic um they have a feeling of there's no overexposure to the to the streetscape um, the home is placed in a nice position on the land. There is no uh, issues with things like easements, flood zones, and the width of the home, it's a nice sort of frontage. And so the street, the appeal, and the frontage also tick a lot of boxes for me. Now, when it comes to the concept of the mathematics of uh, basically housing, there is a concept known as land to asset ratio, the land to asset ratio. All this means is simply put, how much 
of the value of the overall price is land and how much of the overall price is built or the building. So let's say you had a property for $700,000, $350,000 of it is land and $350,000 of it is the build. You have a 50% land value to asset value ratio. Both are worth 50%. Now, my general rule is the minimum is 50%. Um, and the reason being, generally how it works as well, is if 50% of the overall cost is the building, buildings carry with it cash flow. The better the building, the better the cash flow, the better the cash flow, less money coming out of your pocket. As you play with the ratio, uh, you might get up to, for example, if you looked at a property which has 90% land value and 10% building value, i.e. the land to asset ratio is 90% land, 10% build, you would probably see that that building should be condemned. There is no value in the building, so you would not be able to get a yield out of the building. It probably is a knockdown. And so when I buy subdivisions, generally there's a building, a dilapidated kind of old derelict building sitting on it that has no value the only thing left of value is the land. And so, again, some uh, people prefer a higher land to asset ratio, i.e. a much older building on a block of land because buildings depreciate and land depreciates. I tend to sort of prefer to work with people that, need some more help with their cash flow. So I tend to prefer a better housing dynamic on the land to create more cash flow and use the building to pay off the land. So obviously a nicer home has better rent. Better rent can pay the debt of the overall property off uh, faster. So I just approach it that way. But certainly if the building is just too much and the land too less, i.e. the asset is worth 90% of the, of, um, the uh, value, uh, the building is worth 90% and the land's worth 10%, then you're going to run into a problem because there will be a limitation on the level of growth performance in land values that is associated to the property you own. So bare ass minimum, 50%. Um, you know, uh, by way of example, you know, uh, the McDowell properties where land value is a lot higher will be sitting at around 65% land value, 35% building value. So it does buffer, but I think anywhere from sort of 50, 60, 70% is good. Um and anything above that, probably the building's falling down. So it might sound or groovy to go, oh, it's got 80% land value as opposed to the asset value. Well, great. Like, are you going to blow up the building and knock it down? Or are you going to drop a couple hundred grand on a reno? What's the, what's the conversation? So that's the conversation around land. And uh, I'm going to conclude the conversation here. Obviously, land is just one component. Then you got to build something. So we might have a conversation about that on another podcast. But uh, ultimately, um, you know, as a property investor, if you're thinking about a portfolio, housing is a good uh, way to, to get ahead. And so one way to get your capital growth could be from the housing marketplace. You've got a couple of choices out there. And uh, today I wanted to go over a few of the choices which are typical in the marketplace so you can make a decision. So these are generally the, the types, right? So you've got a knockdown rebuild. So you basically look at, at a house, it's all land value, it's a derelict home. You buy it, you knock it down and you rebuild. You've got infill house and land. So basically you're buying a really, really boutique 
into a really boutique piece of land, you build a new home on it. You've got greenfield houses, which are new communities. Uh, new communities, you're probably better off betting on, um, you know, the community itself, making sure you buy a nice, good-sized block of land. Then you've got Nextfield housing communities, basically the next suburb effect. Um, and again, you can leapfrog the derelict suburbs where you don't want to renovate because you would be overcapitalizing. Then you've got great housing choices in old character established suburbs. And these are your quintessential wealth pockets, beautiful homes, heritage sometimes, um, make great investments. And, um, you know, if you've got the budget, that's, that's also a great way to get those, that capital growth rate you're looking for. So I hope that was helpful. Uh, I'll catch you on the next episode. We'll talk more real estate. Thanks for tuning in to the Urban Property Investor. To never miss an episode, make sure you subscribe to the podcast on your favorite app or on YouTube. And I would love it if you could give the show a rating and share it with your friends and family. In between episodes, you can always keep in touch with me by connecting on social media over Facebook, Instagram, or LinkedIn. Until we meet again on the next episode of the Urban Property Investor, take care and bye for now.